0: Um, we are going to be continuing a bit of a series that we 're doing this week and next uh, of just about the Grove Church and some of the things that we 're observing and changes that we 're seeing or uh, dynamics that we 're seeing happen in our church that are pretty exciting and today we 're going to talk about what it is to be uh, with each other. We kind of have these three key words of go and the direction and the movement that our church is and uh, and to be with each other and, and with each other is is uh, born out of a series that we did a few. Uh, maybe a year and a half ago or something, uh, where we started using the the language to say to people, I'm with you, and that being our posture uh, uh, towards people as far as understanding this is uh, who we are in relationship to the people around us. And uh, uh, So today we're going to talk about what it is to be with each other and what it is to be known by our love. And we need to start, of course, with a bit of a—I need to confront our church a bit and what I think— might be a disobedience to the Scripture issue. There's four times in the New Testament, um, Romans 16, 16, 2 Corinthians 13, 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, 26, and 1 Peter 5, 14, uh, that where there's a command in the Scripture that isn't followed. Anybody, have you read those? You don't have these memorized? All right. If you're a young man uh, and you like girls in your youth group, these are verses you want to memorize. It, is, it actually commands us to greet each other with a holy kiss. Uh, Four times in the New Testament, that's commanded. And uh, so, young men, if you're here next time you're at youth group, just stand by the door as the girls come in. Hand out verses and uh, pack her up. It's just, just biblical, right? It actually is four times in the New Testament. It's some, some of my favorite verses because people who will argue. Uh, interpretations or things of the New Testament, and they want us to interpret everything absolutely literally or something like that, like women can't have short haircuts and, and wear hats or something like this. Uh, I love to pull those verses out, because they never start the conversation by kissing me. And, uh, and I say, I'm not going to argue with you until I get a kiss. And that's how, if we're going to do this literally, we're going to kiss right here in Starbucks right now. And then the conversation changes. Uh, <laughs> Usually people want to talk to us about what's going on, you know, and I, I, my friend said you're a pastor, oh yeah, we're that kind of church, but, um, (laughs) and also you need to know it's not appropriate after church to kiss me, all right, so uh, after I'm done this sermon I will be sneaking backstage and hiding uh, because I know you and I don't trust you, (laughs) because you think it's funny to slobber on me when I say things like that, so. It actually isn't something that uh, kissing, or like uh, if you've seen uh, Middle Eastern cultures, is a common way of greeting. And so in the scripture, it's actually commanding people to greet each other warmly and uh, to actually enjoy being in each other's company. So this would be closer to shake hands in a manly way would, would be a little more appropriate when you talk to <laughs> Pastor James, all right, um, who does not want your lips on him. Um, <laughs> In the, uh, in the Bible, if you get the weekly email, I started talking about this in the weekly email. If you don't, I would jump on the Facebook page or email someone at The Grove. We can get you signed up for the weekly email. Um, but my favorite church in all history uh, is the church in, in the very first church in the city of Corinth. It was planted uh, around the year like 50 or 51 by the Apostle Paul. And, uh, and he began this church in this city. Uh, if you think Jesus died probably around the year 30 A.D., this is just like 20 years into what we call Christianity, and so it's very young and formative, and people are trying to figure out what it is. Is it just an extension of Judaism or being Jewish, or is there something more to it? Can I, do you have to become Jewish to become Christian? Were questions that popped up really early in Christianity. And, and this church in the city of Corinth um, because I, of the way I believe, I really love this church because this uh, Corinth would be um, the kind of city, I said in the email, if you lived in Corinth, you would go to Vegas for a family style vacation. That's how Corinth was. It was, a, it was like a peninsula that went out into the sea, and, and Corinth was out on the end of that peninsula, and it was cheaper and better if you were uh, shipping things by sea to pull into the one port on the one end of Corinth and people, there was like a slave trade that would actually carry the things from your ship, and sometimes your ship itself would actually portage across the land, and, and now on the other side load it into a new ship or put your ship in the water. There's now today like a, a huge canal that ships go through in the modern day city of what would be Corinth uh, that is it's like steep sides and everything that's dug in, but it's, it's kind of an interesting dynamic. If you think of a port city in the roman era um the way that port cities and the decadence that you would have seen in port cities and this was like a a two port city and it had been destroyed uh just a a short time before the time of jesus and the time of this church planting so by time the church is in corinth it's a roman colony but before that uh and some scholars think this was still going on but it's debatable there's a steep hill and on top of that hill was a temple Uh, to the god uh, Aphrodite and it would have and it was uh, said to have anyways a thousand temple prostitutes which you would would come down into the village and you'd worship uh, through prostitution uh, the god uh, that they would be worshiping up on the hill and so religion in this town uh, even religion in the town of Corinth was this wild, decadent expression of, of just like lost and going after whatever it was that you wanted. And people would roll into town and roll out of town, sometimes literally if they're rolling the ship across to the other port. Uh, and so this in this is where apparently Paul decides to plant a church. And when he starts this church, he doesn't stay a long time. He starts the church. He baptizes a few people, puts them in charge, and leaves. And Paul would plant churches. He planted a lot of churches when he was first starting because there were no churches anywhere, so he had to go and start them. And sometimes there were riots, and sometimes he was beaten, and you know all this kind of stuff. The Corinthian church kind of was, I think, special to him. He actually wrote five letters to the, or we think, five letters to the Corinthian church. Two of which are in the Bible. And uh, they actually, like, some of them apparently are kind of stern. Uh, some of them are a bit aggressive uh, in, his, in the way he was talking to the people. Because the people of Corinth, the church of Corinth, um, like, you know how sometimes churches will have, like, a rock concert to try to get non-Christians to come, like, we're going to be cool and edgy? Well, the people of Corinth got plastered at communion time. Like, they served the real wine, and I mean, they served the real wine, all right? And so they thought, if we're going to be eating the bread and drinking the cup, let's get into it, right? Like, this is, we, these are, you got to remember, these are all people who, their commitment to Jesus means they didn't do temple prostitution anymore. And so drunkenness off of communion might not have been that strange, like you all think, that's craziness, right, unless you grew up in a church where the, you know, priest did that kind of thing but but then it was just the priest it wasn't everyone but there was uh, that's only funny because you know it's kind of true but there is uh, there there wouldn't have been like that if we're worshiping God then don't I want to be all in like don't I want to really worship God and so they would uh, like this thinking is not surprising that they would have this thinking and they had sexual immorality in their church to the extent that they would actually celebrate there was a Uh, and this is in one of the letters, uh, that Paul had to confront them because there was a man who was sleeping with his father's wife who wasn't his mother. So his father had a a new wife or a stepmom and this man fell in love with his stepmom and they were sleeping together and the church celebrated that they were in love. And Paul writes them and says, okay, let's not do that anymore. (laughs) And you can see Paul kind of turning red and the steam coming out of his ears. And and just but. But for a people who come from such what we would call a decadent and broken system, to try to become Christian was a very long, like that's a big step for someone to operate with morals and values that are so different than anything that they would have grown up with. If you grew up here, there's like an underpinning of this Judeo-Christian thing. Like and it's, sometimes it's very under. You know, but there's a general morality that exists in our culture where we celebrate when people do good things, and we are saddened uh, when people do things that we consider evil. And what we base that morality on, I think, is in flux right now in our culture. But but we don't take huge steps towards morality uh, in the same way. I think we take big steps, but not in the same way that the Church of Corinth would. And so they start this church, and when Paul writes them, well, you'll see it, because I'm going to read four passages from First and Second Corinthians, what's going to be surprising is Paul is constantly proud of this church. Like, I'm so proud of you guys. I'm so and, and you're getting drunk at communion, let's stop that, and you're sleeping with your stepmom, let's stop that, but I'm so proud of you guys. And it's that kind of thing that, I, that when we talk about church, a lot of times it's a holiness contest. And by holiness, I mean behavioral modification where I'm going to act the most Christian and we try to act the most Christian. But apparently the Corinthian church was from such a broken culture they didn't even know how to pretend to be Christian. Does that make sense? Like you know some people or maybe yourself have mastered the art of pretending to be Christian so that the people around you and this definition of Christian that you're pretending to be uh, is formed by this cultural ideal that you have, and, and it, it, your life has these different faces on it according to the situation that you're in or the people that you're with. And for some of us, that's like a survival mechanism, um, but it's not the way that Jesus wants us to live. And the Corinthian church apparently didn't have that skill, and, uh, and Paul was increasingly proud of them for their engagement with Jesus in their life what I like about Jesus is that he interacts with people and things that are not holy all the time when Jesus was on earth he was interacting and people would unclean unholy people would touch him and by nature that automatically makes him unclean but because he's Jesus he actually turns the unclean into clean through contact And because we have Christ in us, this is going to be the end of my sermon, but because we have Christ in us, making contact with the unclean doesn't automatically make us clean, it makes the unclean clean, and that's called redemption. And I think that story is the story of what it is to love one another, and I think that story is the story of the very early church in Corinthians. So let me read this to us, all right? Uh, So this is the beginning of the letter written by Paul to the city in Corinth, and it's a real live letter, and in their letters in their day, they would say who it was at the beginning, kind of like when you call someone on the phone uh, because you don't realize that everyone has caller ID, and they say, hi, James, and you say, hi, it's James, and you realize you were born in the late 70s. All right, so Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who, in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And then the greeting of grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul begins with something positive. I give you, uh, sorry, I give thanks to my God always because of the grace that God was given you in because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he has something they needs to point out very early: I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarrelling among you, my brothers. And what I mean is that each one of you says, "I follow Paul, or I follow Apollo's, or I follow Cephas, who is Peter or I follow Christ. And the question is, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And then in brackets he says, I did baptize also the household of Stephanas, but beyond that I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. (laughs) Apparently Paul baptized so many people he just forgets about them which is probably true. You see in this very early letter to this church, remember what I said about this church and the problems that they had and the things that they were confused about, the first thing that Paul brings up in this letter isn't sexual immorality, isn't licentiousness, isn't drunkenness, isn't morality issues. It's unity. It's being together and loving one another and being in agreement in that. Paul actually, uh, he actually says, this is verse, uh, oh, now I've lost it. Oh, this is bad. <laughs> he says, for it is, uh, there should be no divisions, this is verse 10, all right. So there, there, there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. If you have an older Bible, instead of saying united, it says like you be complete. And it means complete like as a, as a group, that you be complete by being in the same mind, which would mean the same mind would re- refer in their language to uh, like the things that you ought to know and the same in judgment would be what you should do with the information that you're sharing with different people or what you should do in different situations that you learn about in your church. But Paul's early urging in his letter to the people isn't a morality issue. It's a unity issue. Because he understands that if we have this unity and if we have this love one for another, those morality issues tend to be a lot more um, tackleable. They tend to be a lot more manageable. And not manage in a sense of, we'll shove them under the rug because we all want to keep the peace but being able to confront people when you are united with them and they know that you are for them and they are for you or being able to have hard conversations even if you're not confronting people but hard conversations about things you believe and things they believe or ways that you are convicted and ways that they are convicted it could actually build people up if there's an environment of unity and an environment of completeness among the people already. And the, so the people who are in Corinth, are, uh, they tend to follow, and they actually had like halls where orators and teachers would come, uh, kind of like TED Talk type things would come in and deliver messages. And when Paul went, Paul was actually famous for being a terrible preacher. And so when he, like, there's actually a story in the Bible where someone falls asleep during his sermon falls out a window and dies and so that's why we encourage you not to sit by the windows but there's it's unbiblical but there is this there's this um uh sending of like apollos and timothy and titus and these other dynamic preachers to corinth that happens and then they start going oh i like his teaching or i like his teaching, or i like his teaching and this happens in the church all the time like oh I like this author and this pastor, so I don't like this one, you know? Like, I'll listen to this TV preacher, but this TV preacher is too angry. Or I like this TV preacher because he is angry, but that one, he smiles too much. I don't trust him, right? And, and, and there's these uh, dynamics that we get where we're in all of these things, and we encourage division, whereas Paul actually says, did someone besides Christ die for you? <laughs> or were you baptized in a name besides Christ? our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because if Jesus is what matters, then Jesus is what matters. And the division that goes by, I'm a left-leaning Christian or I'm a right-leaning Christian actually shouldn't be a division at all. And not just among an individual church, but among the church in a global sense. So that the church in a global sense understands that they're with each other and that they stand by each other. So the end of the uh, book, this is chapter uh, 16. I'm just going to read four verses. This is kind of the action step at the end of, of this letter that Paul writes that's 16 chapters long. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, you are also to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. See, the church actually kind of began in the city of Jerusalem and then spread out from there. But the city of Jerusalem was experiencing incredible poverty and incredible persecution for the Christians and the church in Jerusalem so that these other churches started collecting uh, collections and would send money to their brothers and sisters in the city of Jerusalem, and so Paul actually writes this letter and says, "You should be all together, and your demonstration of being all together will be like not just all together at, in Corinth, but all together across all of where the churches all—it's the, the whole Roman Empire, really, where the churches were beginning. We should be united." It's much like the way in our churches today we live in an area of economic prosperity, but not all churches live in that area. It's much like when there are Christians in our world who are being uh, murdered uh, for their faith, and you can watch the news and they put this on, that's our pain, that's not their pain, that's us and them because they are just as much your brothers and sisters, if you're a person of Jesus, as the person who's sitting next to you or the person who led you to the Lord. And so the feeling of unity that we have and the sense of unity that we have actually dictates that our response be proportionate to the Christians, no matter their location. So for the very early church, Corinth had the opportunity to demonstrate their faithfulness and their unity because that church had a financial need, the church in Jerusalem. And so they were able to put money together so that when Paul or his messengers came, they could send it. And he didn't tell them, you need to do this much. He didn't tell them a percentage. He, didn't, he said, according to how each one prospers, set money aside. So that when I come, I don't have to do a big service with a fundraiser and all that garbage. Set money aside so that we can do this thing. And then they would move into unity with the church in a global sense. Because being together isn't the point. Loving one another is the point. Being together in the same room is not, by definition, a unified church. I'm fairly certain you've been in the same room with people that you are not united to. You probably work with people or have been in class with people or are related to people. <laughs> Who you will be in the same room as them at Thanksgiving or at a work party and you know you are not united to that person. So being in the same room isn't it, but it's a sense and a um, a position of the heart towards others that actually causes this unity. So in 2 Corinthians, so this is another letter later on that Paul writes again to the Corinthian church. He actually is sending Titus to them. This is 2 Corinthians 16 to 24. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. So Titus apparently cares for the Corinthian church in the same way that Paul did. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. So Titus is deciding to go to the church of Corinth. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. So he's sending very good preachers to a town that appreciates good preaching. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered to us the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us so they have integrity, for we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, He is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. This is the key verse. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Now, Paul has a collection of churches, kind of a quasi first denomination if you will there's these churches that paul has started and he tells the corinthian church that titus is coming and they're going to administer this offering and carry it down there and they're going to have multiple people managing it so that nobody thinks paul is skimming and he wants the church to prove their love to the other churches and his boasting about them The church that Paul is bragging about to the other churches is the church that I was telling you about that's getting plastered on communion Sundays. Well, hopefully not anymore by the time the second letter comes around. The church that Paul is bragging about is in a city where sexual immorality is the norm, not the immorality. It's just sexual activity because that's what religion is. The church that Paul brags about might be the most messed up, broken, nutty church that existed in the very early churches that Paul planted. This is the one that Paul decides to brag about. This is the one that Paul decides to tell all the other churches about. You should see this church in Corinth. And I don't think it's spin. Like, I don't think he said, well, I'm going to not tell you the bad things because he wrote these down and now they're in the Bible. So people probably figured those things out. But Paul actually would be able to brag about them because the effect of the grace of God on them was so miraculous. For It's like the Bible teaches, if you've been saved through much or from much, the grace of God is even more glorified. Your thankfulness is amplified beyond that. People who turn to Jesus who think they're A-OK already don't think they need a lot of Jesus. But the people who actually turn to Jesus and understand their own depravity and their own distance from the holiness that is Jesus actually demonstrate a thankfulness to Jesus that carries on throughout their whole life. If you can sing about the cross like it's just another thing in the same way that you sing about whatever it is you sing about in the car, then I would say you don't understand the application of the sacrifice on the cross to your life. If you can read through the scripture and read through the death and resurrection of Jesus and not realize that your sin was the cause of that and your life is the beneficiary of that and not have a sense of wonder and amazement then I would say you're in danger of not actually understanding what salvation is, of not understanding what it is to follow Jesus. And I know that's aggressive and maybe that's not nice to you or whatever, but if you think you're a okay with Jesus and Jesus makes your life better, then I would say you haven't been told who Jesus actually is. Because Jesus isn't an add-on to your life that improves Your life. The church isn't a social club that gives you some friends, but it's a radical movement of people who understand their depravity and understand their need for Jesus, which is why when people criticize me or others and say, oh, that your faith is just a crutch, the obvious answer is, well, no duh. Like, I I am fully in agreement with that, because to be a Christian is to say, I am not able to live this life the way it should be lived on my own power and my own authority. That I need the work of the Holy Spirit in my life in order to be the person that Jesus wants me to be. To understand and acknowledge that apart from Christ, I am the worst of the worst. The Apostle Paul called himself the chief of sinners. And I don't know a better Christian than the guy who starts churches all over at the beginning and writes most of the New Testament. Like, I know some of us are really good Christians, but you haven't written any of the Bible. Like, any. Like, zero. Like, nothing even that we'd consider. You probably haven't even written anything, like, worth reading. That's rude, too, but whatever. (laughs) But there is, maybe you have written something worth reading, but I haven't read it. So anyways, apparently it's not that worth it. This is how... (laughs) This is how the Second Corinthians ends. And it's one of the holy kiss verses, that's why I brought that up at the beginning. So don't get excited, but... Verse 11 of uh, chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians goes this way. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the result is the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so it ends with this same theme of aiming for restoration, of comforting one another, of agreeing with one another, and living in peace. This church that had all sorts of moral deficiencies, like the kind of moral deficiencies that are probably existing in every church. I would bet that some of us here have moral failings. I would bet that some of us in our lives have sinned this morning. And Paul's letter to the worst church it ends with uh, be restored to one another, like agree with one another, live in peace with each other. Don't be a group of people who are defined by your conflict to each other. Here's why we go through all of this. There's a lot of um, reasons to belong to a church. And there are churches in our area that have their sign out front and you drive by and it says their church name, the grove, and it'll say, a place to belong. Like this is the idea, if you go to our church, you will experience this sense of belonging. And they do that because all of us kind of want this sense of belonging, This is why you're a Beaver fan, right? And you think they might start winning. I love the Beavers too. But you don't love the Beavers because, like, most of you didn't go to OSU. Most of you don't even really understand football. Um, Most of you enjoy eating barbecue in a parking lot with other people, right? And you enjoy being able to be in conversation with other people, because it gives you a sense of belonging to something. This also applies to Blazer fans. Uh, um, oh, we're going to lose Aldridge. And you feel this sense of loss together, like you're at a losing Aldridge funeral, when really you should be saying adios, because he didn't win for you anyways. But this is the same reason I cheer for whatever team is LeBron James is playing for. Like, I have no loyalty at all but I unliked all the Miami Heat pages on Facebook and I liked all these Cav pages because now I'm a Cavs fan because I feel like I belong to this group of bandwagon jumpers that we go from place to place and that's my people, right? (laughs) You like orange and black. I like whoever's the prettiest. And (laughs) And we just, it's good. Like, what I'm saying is you're not bad and I'm good. We're both terrible but we do this because we have this need to belong and when the church becomes this place that the definition of the church is a place to belong or that's why you should be in a church because you're going to have something in common to talk about with your friends or you're going to have a peer group or your kids will have friends that are of some kind of moral standing then the church begins to look inward And when the church begins to look inward, like I feel like stopping at the church is just to go in and say, here's what you need to know. In three or four years, this is what's going to happen. Because when you stop looking at the mission and stop looking at the point of the organization or the group or the family, and you start just looking inward, you start to notice each other. And when you start to notice each other, you start to notice your dissatisfaction with each other. Like If you actually start to look at the Grove, you'll notice that there's several people here who are radically different from you. There are people here who think your opinions on whatever issues are closest to your heart are ridiculous and dumbfounded. They don't understand how you could possibly think the things you think. And if you spend all your time focused on those things and you end up focused on your differences then the church begins to implode. This is why churches are so good at splitting and breaking up and ranting and and all those kinds of things. Because a church will turn inwards and say, look at how awesome we are. We all belong. Let's all talk about the same things, maybe use the same lingo, maybe sing the same songs and just inward, 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 inward. And if loses the point of the church, which is, a movement of the grace of god in people's hearts that is by extension a movement of the people in the world which it bears out in first and second corinthians which we don't have time to read all of it if you ever watch war movies i love watching war movies all the time they quote that famous poem that talks about how the person who sheds his blood with me today is my brother There's the whole series called Band of Brothers, which is by definition the brotherhood. I served for four years in the Canadian Army Reserve, which you call like girl guides, but it is equivalent in its military precision. And there is... (laughs) We basically did a bad job of camping with pretend guns, but there is this... uh, We've never lost the war. All right, so... (laughs) Please don't attack us, because... (laughs) We have got a good record, and I stick with winners, but, uh, <laughs> but there is this, uh, I served, and to this day, I served for four years, like 15, 20 years ago, and to this day, I'm Facebook friends and actual in relationships and have discussions with people that I served with, and I served in like a, an, in a country that doesn't really do the war thing, and I served in the reserves of the country who doesn't really do the war thing. Your country has bases larger than all three branches of our military in Canada, like, base, like a single gathering of troops. And so when you encounter people like, that have served in this kind of stress, you begin to see a sense of brotherhood among them that goes beyond, and I'm not just talking about men, it's brotherhood in a gen, not a gender-specific way, but in a way that they went through the same stress. You'll see this with teams, sports teams that overcame adversity. You'll see this with work teams who overcame a challenge or you were together at the beginning of a startup. You'll see this here at the Grove with people who were on the middle or in the core of the launch team. For a lot, like, it's like, and and we don't say it very much, but there is this lingo at our church that says, are you launch? Because the people who were there at the beginning when we didn't even know what it looked like had this common bond of we're going to be a part of a church that we don't know what it looks like. And it doesn't make them better or worse, just like the soldiers you talk to don't consider themselves better or worse. What it means is they get to experience a brotherhood that other people don't experience. And when a church begins to look inward, what they're actually giving up is that actual sense of unity that comes from following the mission of Jesus into where Jesus wants you to go because you would never find a group of troops or a group of uh, of a team or a work group or a people who started up a company who just went inward you would never find them inspiring or relatable or something that you would want to be a part of you might join and have this weird sense of belonging but after a while that actually goes away because you realize that's all there is. Because we don't want to say that the grove is a place to belong. You may belong. What we want to say is the grove is a place to live out what it is to love. And not just love here, but actually to push that outward to where the grove isn't a place where you say, I have this real sense of all these people looking inwards at ourselves, Instead, I have this sense of I'm side by side with others who dream of the same dreams of me, who are willing to sacrifice the same sacrifices that I make, who are willing to endure the same pain that I'm willing to endure in order to be who Jesus has actually called us to be. Unity in the church isn't a homogeneous unit or mixture where we all think the same things, and we all um, are exactly the same. And we all have the same theology. When that happens, we end up splitting churches into very small splinter groups, and we have the theology of this split off from that, and we have these long trees of churches who all disagree on the color of the communion cups. And we end up there. Instead, the story of the church. And I'm not against denominations, but the story of the church should be the story of unity and brotherhood because we stand side by side because we've been saved by the work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection and then called and enmissioned for the work of Christ in the world. The reason that Paul was so down with the Corinthian church was because their challenge and their struggle was so great. And the reason that I moved to Oregon is because the challenge and the struggle is so great. When you live, I mean, you don't know this because you were born and bred here, but there's, the Pacific Northwest is different than the Bible Belt and everywhere else. And there's some in the Northeast who claim to be as pagan as us, but I don't see them collecting mushrooms on the weekend, all right? <laughs> we are... <laughs> I'm bragging about how pagan we are. There you go. But we live in a culture where the difference between someone who follows Jesus and someone who doesn't is stark. And there's places in our country where the difference is minuscule and not noticeable. Places in the Bible Belt. Where I lived for a while and I knew I couldn't live there because it seemed like nobody needed Jesus. And I love living in a place Where the need for Jesus is so obvious. Where the stark difference between is so obvious. Because I grew up in northern Ontario. You know when you do, if you were in high school, you do that see you at the pole thing. Where all the high schoolers come around and stand around the flagpole. When I lived in Georgia, they turned it into a first period assembly and every kid had to go. It was the most confusing thing in the world for me. Because I never did see you at the pole in high school. Because I knew one other Christian in my high school. And I thought it would be kind of awkward for the two of us to hold hands around a flagpole. And I really, I started a Christian club in my high school. Like I was an outspoken, well, not outspoken. I didn't understand consequences of my actions. And so I did whatever the heck I felt like. And when it was good, it was good. And when it was bad, it was really bad. But... But I started a Christian group because there was some American speaker who said you need a, he was probably from the Bible Belt and ran assemblies, and said you need a Christian club. So I started a Christian club. I got my Sunday school teacher who was an old lady with silver hair. She came with her friend and we sang hymns. It was the worst club I was ever in. But I knew we needed a Christian club because that inspiring speaker at the conference said so. But I had a bond with the people in my Christian club, my terrible Christian club because I knew we were doing something and we were moving in a direction that mattered. And I bet if I would have stood around that flagpole and held hands with that one other person, it'd be a bond that lasted a very, very long time. And being a part of the growth doesn't mean you get to automatically be a place where you get to have friends and feel like you belong. What it means is we're a group of people moving in a particular direction and years from now and decades from now You'll be able to tell war stories about the suffering and the sacrifices that you made in order that the message of Jesus would be propagated in our community across the valley, across our state, and around the world. Because we don't believe that we're a church just for people to feel like they are loved. But we're a church for people to actually be known by their reckless love for each other and for the world because of the reckless love of Jesus for us. So this isn't like the with isn't be a part of the church and spend more time together being together. The with is be a part of the church and spend more time together moving in a direction that Jesus has called you to. Less time huddled up and more time in a tactical formation where you'll understand what brotherhood is. I'm not trying to start a militia, but you know what I'm trying to say. (laughs) I want to pray that way today, and then we're going to worship God. And the response to this, it could be something easy like join a life group or do that, but I really, and I don't mean to make this cheap, but I really believe that getting together with other people and serving others is the dynamic that is with. And I'm not saying you need to join the kids ministry or the popcorn team or something or other. But you need to get together with your friends and say, we need to live for something that's beyond ourselves. Because if you just live for yourself, you're automatically going to hit division. You're automatically going to notice, eventually notice, that you're just living for yourself. But in living for others, you'll experience what it is to live as Christ in our world. So that's the way I'm going to pray for us. All right, let's stand. Jesus. We want to turn our hearts towards you with an openness that allows us to hear from you. And we want to ask that you would inspire us to action today. Because we love being together, and that's not a bad thing, because we love being together. But we would ask that you would move us in a direction that we would be able to say, were you there when we did this? Were you a part of of this movement? Were you there when the grove took this step? Were you there when the people took seriously what it is to serve others, both in our church and out of our church, and all of a sudden we were a people that was known by our reckless love for each other and for our community? Allow that to be a part of us and a part of our lingo. And may your Spirit move in us in such a way that we're in awe of what you are doing in our midst, God. Not that we think we're better or worse than that Corinthian church, but we pray that the sanctification and the salvation that we have would be this great of a distance that the Corinthian church got to experience so that we can appreciate who you are and what you've done for us and share that great sacrifice with the world. In your name we pray. And to you we give our worship. Amen.